Since Adam and Eve sinned and were therefore expelled from the Garden of Eden, 1,600 years, give or take, of human history brings us to the events of Genesis chapter 6. Last Sunday, we began our examination of this chapter by pointing out, really focusing, as to how thoroughly wicked and perverse this God-rejecting world descending from Cain had become. We're told that every intent was only evil continually. A sad plight indeed. Now, while it's true that we're told as a result of these things, God's judgment was nigh. In 120 years, God would destroy man. It's important we reiterate another crucial point we talked about last Sunday. And that is the motivation behind this coming judgment. God's motivation. Keep in mind, contrary to to public opinion, Genesis 6, the text, does not paint the picture of an angry God. The Lord was sorry that he had made man, not in the sense that he regretted it, but in the sense he was sorry what had become of the man he had created. He saw the the gem of his created order descend into chaos. He saw sin wreak havoc in the world. It broke his heart. He was grieved. God was not angry. God was not vindictive. Instead, our text, Genesis 6, presents a God who is forced to act out of love. Love for mankind. If Satan's contamination of the human gene pool continued to progress unabated, God's very plan, the plan laid out in Genesis chapter 3, that it would be through the seed of the woman that man would be saved, that plan would be thwarted. God had to act in order to save man. Judgment here was necessary. As a matter of fact, the very notion that, quote, God's spirit was striving with man communicated the idea that judgment, it was not something God came to easily. It wasn't as though he made the decision to judge haphazardly, flippantly. This idea of striving means that God's judgment was instead a matter of last resort. This Hebrew word strive, we find in Genesis 6, 3, it literally means to plead a cause. God was pleading with man to repent. Why? Because he didn't want to judge. And yet, though it's clear that man's rejection of God was irreversible, and judgment, therefore, inevitable. Genesis 6, verse 8, presents for us a glorious, incredible, amazing reality. We're told, in light of all the things that were going on, but Noah found grace in the eyes of the Lord. From God's grace, demonstrated to this man Noah, as we noted last Sunday, independent of the man himself, This idea that Noah found grace doesn't mean Noah discovered it, but instead grace found Noah. Before we learn anything about the man at all, we're told he found God's grace. God's grace, God's unmerited favor was demonstrated to Noah. And as a result of those things, the next verse tells us that God's grace subsequently made Noah into a righteous man. It wasn't his effort. It wasn't his energies. He didn't earn it. It was bestowed by God's grace. 
Additionally, he's declared perfect in his generation. Literally, that word perfect is without spot, without blemish. It's a word used to describe the sacrifices, being perfect, acceptable to God. So Noah is made righteous by God's grace, not his works. He's perfected without sin, not by his best attempts, but by God's grace. We also saw that Noah, as a result of grace, was afforded the opportunity to walk with God. I hope you understand this morning your relationship with Jesus. The opportunity to walk with Jesus is not something that you've earned. It's not an opportunity that your goodness has afforded you. As a matter of fact, the only reason you can walk with God is because Jesus died on the cross to make that walk possible. By God's grace, by being saved by God's grace, it being a gift, you can have a relationship access to the Father. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You can go to God's throne on your own whenever you want. It's an amazing thing. We also noted last Sunday that through his faith, Noah's faith, and God's word, grace, we see that ultimately Noah was able to be obedient to all that God had commanded him. We see that at the very end of chapter six. And in the end, by God's grace, Noah was saved, him and his family, from the judgment that would come. We're gonna read several verses. We're gonna kind of backtrack to verse 12 of chapter six, get a running start. We'll dive into chapter seven. But I just wanna reestablish kind of the whole picture of everything that's going on this morning. Verse 12, so God looked upon the earth. And indeed, it was corrupt. For all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. That's bleak. And God said to Noah, the end of all flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. And behold, I will destroy them from the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark, cover it inside and outside with pitch. And this is how you shall make it. The length of the ark shall be 300 cubits, its width 50 cubits, its height 30 cubits. You shall make a window for the ark. You shall finish it to a cubit from above, speaking of the window, and set a door in the side of the ark. You shall make it with lower, second, and third decks. And behold, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh, and which is the breath of life. Everything that is on the earth shall die, but I will establish my covenant with you. And you shall go into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds after their kind, of animals after their kind, of every creeping thing of the earth after its kind. Two of every kind shall come to you to keep them alive. And you shall take for yourself of all food that is eaten, you shall gather it to yourself, and it shall be food for you and for them, speaking of the animals. Thus Noah did, as we noted, according to all that God had commanded him. So he did. Chapter 7, verse 1. Then the Lord said to Noah, 120 years have passed. Come into the ark, you and all your household, because I have seen that you are righteous before me in this generation. Same word we saw in verse 9, translated that Noah was a just man, a righteous man, same word here, Noah was righteous. You shall take, God said with you, seven, each of every clean animal, 
a male and his female, two of each animals that are unclean, a male and his female, also seven of each birds of the air, male and female, to keep the species alive on the face of all of the earth. For after seven more days, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. And Noah did according to all that the Lord commanded him. Noah was 600 years old when the flood waters were on the earth. Now there's a lot in that. A lot to unpack. And to do it, we're going to try to present this with three topics that we're going to kind of explore, unpack. Three topics. If you're a note taker, you can jot them down. First, we're going to look at God's judgment, this flood. Secondly, we're going to look at God's plan for salvation, the ark. And then we're going to look at Noah's involvement, his obedience. First, let's look again at God's judgment. Just a couple verses we're going to go back to. Chapter 6, verse 7, we're told the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I have created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds of the air. First time God has kind of filled man in on what the plan was. Then a couple verses later, verse 13 of chapter 6, God now fills Noah in, says the end of flesh has come before me, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Chapter 6, verse 17, reiterating, I myself, God says, am bringing floodwaters on the earth to destroy from under heaven all flesh in which is the breath of life. Everything on the earth shall die. Not to be even more clear, chapter 7, verse 4. Again, God says, I will cause it to rain on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. I will destroy from the face of the earth all living things that I have made. Now, these verses make it crystal clear what God's plan is, right? I mean, four times it gets reiterated expounded upon maybe from a different angle, but the picture gets painted by God very starkly. Three things we note. One, the result of this coming judgment was that all man, land animals, and birds, creeping things, would be utterly destroyed from the face of the earth. This coming judgment would kill all living things, with the exception, interesting, of fish and marine life. We also note from these verses that God would accomplish this judgment, a judgment that would kill all man, beast, living thing, birds. This judgment would be carried forth through a global flood. Not only must this flood be global in nature to yield the intended purpose behind the flood. It'd be very difficult to kill all things if it was a localized flood, as some have claimed. The text presents no room for such an idea. It would be impossible with a localized flood for the intended purpose of killing everything, right, to have been accomplished. Secondly, as we will see in chapter 7, there's no other plausible conclusion that can be reached that this flood was global in nature. All land was covered with water, which killed all living thing outside of the ark. The third thing that we see from these verses, and I think this is important, is that the judgment itself, while we'll see there was probably very natural causes behind the judgment, don't mistake the fact that this judgment was enacted by God himself. In addition to this phrase, in Genesis 6, verse 17, I myself am bringing floodwaters on the earth. 
four times, we find this phrase, I will, connected to this coming judgment. This was God's judgment. And there is no doubt as to his direct involvement with what was about to occur. As a matter of fact, 2 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 and 5, we read, For God did not spare the angels who sinned, but cast them to hell, delivered them into chains of darkness to be reserved for judgment. We talked about that last Sunday. For God did not spare the ancient world, but God saved Noah, one of eight people, a preacher of righteousness, bringing in the flood on the world of the ungodly you believe in a flood, you should believe it was global. Anything else is, is kind of silly. On a side note, as we noted in our very first study of Genesis, we could take the next 10 weeks to talk about the flood, to talk about the ark, to talk about the science, to talk about how that affects uh, strata and how that affects uh, the earth in which we see. I mean, we could really go on a tangent here about the science, the results, things that would have occurred. Not to say that those things aren't valuable, that you shouldn't study them, but we're going to leave that to you to do on your own. Our whole purpose here and looking at Genesis is really the purpose of Genesis, to examine the development of God's grace. Yes, there was judgment, but Noah found grace. Yes, all men would die, but Noah found grace. Secondly, look at God's plan of salvation. In order to save Noah, his wife, Noah's three sons and their wives, as well as male and female representatives of every living thing, we're told in Genesis chapter 6 verse 14 that the Lord instructed Noah to do something, right? He says, I'm going to destroy everything with this flood. It's coming. Make for yourself an ark of gopher wood. Now, let's just take a minute and from our verses, from this text, describe the ark. Because we're given quite a bit of detail. First, we're told that the ark was to be 300 cubits long, 50 cubits wide, 30 cubits high. Now, we're not 100% sure exactly what a cubit was. Most people think it was about 18 inches, and there seems to be some historical veracity to such an idea. With that in mind, at a minimum, this ark, this boat Noah was told to build, would be 450 feet in length, 75 feet in width, 45 foot tall. Now, keep in mind, this ark, it's not called a boat. God didn't say Noah built a boat. He said, build an ark. This is something specific. Notice, we're not given any indication that Noah was to design the ark to be navigated on water. Like no mention of a rudder, a mast, sails. No, instead, think about the ark as a rectangular box with a six to one ratio, making it perfect to float. It's a barge, a cruiser. Not made to be navigated, but just to stay afloat. As a matter of fact, some people who have done the studies of, of this particular box said that it could have stayed upright even at a 90-degree angle come down. It's made to endure choppy seas, not to be navigated. We're also told that the ark was to have a window. Did you notice that? 
And we're given more detail that the window was to be finished one cubit from above, from the top. So it's safe to assume that there was a window around the top of the ark, critical to providing airflow, and with so many animals, much-needed ventilation. The ark, we're also told, was to have three decks with a door set in the side of the second. Additionally, we're told the ark was to have an unspecified number of rooms. God doesn't tell them how many rooms, basically build them as necessary. Now, before we continue looking at the ark, let's just take a minute and address a couple questions I know percolate. First, how would all of the animals fit into the ark? Are you going to tell me, Zach, all of the animals were in this boat? I'm going to say yes and no. Like, for starters, it should be pointed out that this ark was massive. Like, the dimensions provided would mean that the ark would have contained 1.4 million cubic feet of space. Now, to try to give you a mental picture of what that is, take an average railroad car. You see them on the trains going through, on cargo ships coming off. 1.4 million cubic feet is the equivalent of approximately 522 railroad cars. Now, if you consider that the average size of a land animal is actually smaller than a sheep. Also factor in that we're not told bring mature adult animals, could have been smaller animals, baby, infants. Basically, the ark would have been large enough to carry 1,300, uh, 136,000, pardon me, 560, I'll repeat it, 136,560 sheep and half the capacity leaving plenty of room for people, food, water, whatever provisions were necessary. Keep in mind, this boat was so massive, it would not be until 1858 that a boat was built bigger on planet Earth. You know the name of it? The Titanic. At least God stayed afloat. Beyond this, the key to our understanding as to what's happening here, how would, God, how, how would all the animals be in the boat? The key is to understand the word associated with the animals that's used over and over and over again in our text is what? God says two of every kind. That word kind is actually very difficult to pin down as to exactly what it means. It can mean species, but it can mean just a kind. Like, understand, the Bible doesn't claim that every animal, or even every representative of every animal, or every species even, was on the ark. All we're told is take two of every kind of animal. What does that mean? I don't know. Other than the fact that it gives room, that, that the number could have been a lot smaller. And you throw in the whole genetic concept, things can grow out from there. The whole purpose of bringing the animals is to preserve species, to preserve generalities, to preserve a remnant of what God had created. Now, I know what you're thinking. <laughs> what about the dinosaurs? Right? It's inevitable. Were there dinosaurs in the ark? Yes, but only a kind of dinosaur. Doesn't mean every dinosaur. 
Just a kind of dinosaur. Another question I know comes to your mind. Okay, Zach. I see. All them animals on the ark. I got you. Well, how did they all get there? Like, I mean, how did Noah get all them animals on the ark? How did he collect them all? Like, was he just an expert huntsman, you know? Did he go out there and he trap them all? No, 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 no. Look, look back at verse 19 and 20 of chapter 6. We're going to kind of combine two ideas. Look at it. God says, of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. But then look, two of every kind will come to you to keep them alive. The passage clearly states that God, that it was God's job to supernaturally bring the animals to the ark. It was then Noah's job to sort them and put them in the ark to keep them alive. You know, we have no idea why it is that animals migrate. Migratory, you know, you don't have to teach a bird to migrate. Like if you examine the concept that somehow the idea of being able to fly to a very specific place thousands of miles away to be able to return when you don't have GPS, you don't have directions, you've never been there before. You're not taught it. There isn't a flight school for the birds. This is where you go when it gets cold. Something in their very molecules provides them the instinct and the direction to go where they need to go. And why couldn't God do the same thing in this instance? God brought the animals. Noah didn't have to go get the animals. He had to build an ark. But then Noah had to sort them. Now, one more thought before we continue concerning the animals. That's really interesting to me. I don't know if you noticed it. But in Genesis 7, God makes a very interesting classification. You know, he's talking about two of every animal. But then when you get to chapter 7, as they're getting on the ark, God kind of adds an amendment. He provides this classification of clean and unclean animals. Now, we know that God would expound upon what that means in the Levitical law hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years later. But now, before the flood, there is still this concept of Levitical classifications before the law. Chapter 7, verse 2, God says, You shall take with you seven of every clean animal, a male and his female, two of the animals that are unclean, male and female, also seven of each of the birds of the air, male and female, presumably those that were clean, to keep the species alive on all the earth. Now, it appears that not everything was acceptable to God as a sacrifice. That that concept existed before the law and was known by Noah. That Noah had an idea that there were some animals that God found to be clean and acceptable as a sacrifice and other animals God classified as unclean, thus he would reject as a sacrifice. So Noah, intending to offer sacrifices after the flood, not wanting to kill out species, God says, bring seven of those that are clean so you have some for sacrifice, male and female, so you have a spare. Let two go, and you got six for sacrifice, and then let them make some more. That's the whole idea here. But what this tells us is that the notion of clean and unclean predates the law and was known, presumably by Adam, Abel, Seth, and those that would come afterwards, to the fact that no one knows exactly what God is talking about here in this passage. That's crazy to me. It's very interesting. I don't even really know all what it means. 
Other than this, what this tells us, it tells us a glorious reality that is just as true today as it was then. And that is the fact that it is God. And God alone. And never the laws of man that determines what is clean and what is unclean. That God looks at the heart of man. And what God says clean, let no man call unclean. Let's get back to the ark. We're also told that it was to be made of gopher wood. Now, if you do any research on this, you'll find some people who claim, well, gopher wood, the way it works in the Hebrew, uh, it's actually cypress wood. Er, wrong, false. It doesn't say that. As a matter of fact, gopher wood, we got no idea what gopher wood is. And if anyone's like, I know exactly what gopher wood is. It's the wood gophers eat. That might be true. But that's not a type of wood. Like, we don't know. And it's not outside of the realm of possibility. Before the flood, there were types of vegetation that existed that, that couldn't survive the changes in the world. That, that's very true. The, the theory I like concerning gopher wood is that it's not a type of wood, but instead a process that's used to prepare wood. The Septuagint actually translates gopher wood as squared beams, a way that you would cut the wood. The Vulgate just says it's, it was planed wood. It could have been a lamination process that went behind crafting the wood, thus making it perfect for something that was to float. We're also told that the ark, lastly, was to be covered inside and outside with pitch. As a vessel, whose main job it was to float, one can imagine a bit of waterproofing was a smart idea. On a side note, David Guzik points out a unique historical detail about that, that verse, inside and outside with pitch. He writes, because of this mention of pitch, a petroleum product, and what most people assume to be the Middle East, John D. Rockefeller looked for and found oil in the Middle East, in this region, based upon this very verse. That it was this verse that led to the discovery of oil. Now, before we move on, I want to point out how this plan for salvation. So God's going to destroy the earth with a flood. The plan... Noah, build an ark. It's this ark. It's going to save you, your kids, your wife, their wives, the animals. But how was this plan communicated? Look at it. Back to verse 13 of chapter 6. After concluding that the judgment was inevitable, we're told, and I like this, you might want to underline it, and God said to Noah. Like this plan by which Noah and his family were going to be saved from this divine judgment carried forth on a wicked world. It was not a plan that was corroborated with Noah. It wasn't like they put their brains together, got together, schemed out, hatched up a plan for salvation. God had a plan and he comes to Noah to communicate it. The plan, I know this is simple, it's important though. The plan was God and God's alone. Wasn't like they got together and hashed out a good idea. Global floods, gonna be a lot of water. You got any ideas, Noah? No, God came and he communicated. Now, this is what I find fascinating. How did God then communicate his plan for salvation to Noah? His word. I'm gonna judge, I'm gonna destroy, I've got a plan to save you. And this is how you're gonna know it. I'm gonna speak to you. 
My words are going to go forth. And God said. I love that. I love that. God spoke to him. He communicated in a way that Noah could grasp the communication, which leads us to the third topic, which was Noah's involvement. While God was going to judge the world, and God was going to provide a way of salvation, correct? Noah still had a role, didn't he? I mean, he was, he was not void of responsibility, involvement. We're told in Genesis 6, that after God had revealed these things through his word, we're told, thus Noah did, according to all that God had commanded him, so he did. God, his word went forth, Noah heard the word, and what did Noah do? He obeyed, make an ark, that's how you're going to be saved. So what did Noah do? He went and made a daggum ark. He acted. Now, now that's only really half to tell. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, gives a more complete picture as to what was the primary driver of Noah's obedience. We read by faith, Noah, being divinely warned of things not yet seen, moved, he acted with godly fear, prepared an ark for the saving of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness, which is according to faith. Now understand what it was that caused Noah to be saved. God spoke, right? Noah believed what God said. And then by faith, Noah acted upon that belief by being obedient to God's commands. Let me repeat that. It's important. What saved Noah? Was it just hearing God's word? No. Was it just believing God's word? No. He heard it, he believed it, and then he acted upon his belief. Holy Toledo, the world's going to be flooded. And God wants to save me. And he told me how he was going to save me. I need to build a boat. And he got busy. For the next 120 years, Noah built an ark filled it with food, loaded it with the animals that God provided. Then seven days before the rains came, got on it, because God said, get on it. Now, it's easy to read through this story, to hear such a story, and overlook how incredible Noah's faith really was. Like This is one of those, those, those times where our familiarity with a story causes us to lose a little of what's actually happening. Imagine for a minute, that you're Noah. You found grace in the eyes of the Lord. God's been doing a work in your heart. You've been walking with God, spending time with God. God's been speaking to you. And then one day, there you are. You're in your quiet time. Maybe it's early in the morning. You're there before the Lord. And God's like, Noah, I need to tell you something. Okay, God, shoot. I'm gonna kill everyone. kind of clean it. Did I hear you right? Yeah, Noah, this world is wicked. I've been patient for years, hoping that man would come back to me, would return to me. I love man, but I can't allow this to go on. I know, I know, Lord, I know. So I'm going to judge. I'm going to kill everything. 
except for you. Well, thank you, Lord. That's good to know. You know, glad I'm going to be saved. That's, that's awesome. Out of curiosity, God, like, how are you going to do that? You know, how are you going to kill everyone? A flood. Oh, I should have known, God. A flood. <clears throat> um, can you elaborate kind of on what a flood is? Now, keep in mind that before this time, it's never rained. Seriously. We're told earlier in Genesis that how was the earth watered? From a mist that came up from the earth. There's a canopy of water. It has never rained. It's never flooded. So God's like, I'm going to kill everyone. Noah's like, that's a, that's a tough pill to swallow, but I'm going to note that. How are you going to do it? A flood. Um, what's that? Well, it's when it rains a lot, Noah, and the earth gets covered with water. Oh, silly me. Um, God, if you wouldn't mind, could you just elaborate on that rain thing? Like, what, what is that? It's when water falls from the sky. Yeah, but, but it's supposed to come up from the earth. No, it's going to fall from the sky. Yeah, but that's never happened before, God. Yeah, trust me, it's going to come from the sky. A lot of it. Going to kill everything with a flood. You're Noah, and we read, by faith he believed. He was divinely warned, right? Okay, God, you're going to judge the earth with water from rain, flood. I don't, I don't really get it. That seems kind of crazy to me, but okay. Now, now, God, the important details here. How are you going to save us from this, this thing that's coming, from the water, from the sky? You're going to build an ark. <laughs> Thank you. An ark. How do you spell? A-R-K, ark. What is that? Well, it's a thing that's going to float on the water. Well, that's helpful. How's it going to float on the water? It's going to have a six to one ratio. Okay, that's cool. But how am I going to do this? Well, let me give you the blueprints. So, so you're Noah and you get the blueprints. You're like, I'm glad I got 120 years because this is a big project. God's like, I'm going to bring all the animals. Like you're Noah, God's speaking to you, and you believe it to start with. And then you're like, okay, I'm going to do this. I'm going to get on this. Now, now that's, that takes incredible faith. i got to make a side point that's not really brought up in our text, but it's implied. Noah's wife is one righteous woman. It's one thing for you in your quiet time to get such a revelation from God. But then you got to go to Mrs. Noah. And you're going you're gonna, to, listen, honey, I'm going to retire early. I'm going to take all of our life savings. And I'm going to build a really large ark in the backyard. A what? It's an ark. A what? It floats on water. Well, why do you need it to, like, well, God's going to bring a flood. Huh? Yeah, because... Water is going to fall from the sky, but it, but it comes up from the earth. Yeah, I, but trust me. He said it's going to do the opposite. It's going to flood the earth, kill everything. So I got to build this boat. I got to liquidate the 401k, max out the stock. I mean, I got to get on it. I'm, and she lets him. Like, this is faith. This is belief. Noah heard God's word, believed it, and then acted upon it. You know, just for a second, I just want to speak to the men. 
Because there's another lesson that, that we can't avoid. God spoke to Noah. True? We get that, right? He spoke to Noah. But we're told that as a result, Noah's family was saved, correct? Not just his wife, but his three sons and their wives. Now, how were their family, how was Noah's family saved? Did God speak to them? We're not told that in the text, are we? We're told God spoke to Noah. So how then did his family, how, how was his family saved? The answer, I think, is thought-provoking. They believed their father was following God. It's the only explanation. They didn't hear from God. Noah did. Noah communicates this plan, and they believed him. Like, I can't help but imagine that what testified of Noah's faith in God's word was not just the words that he shared with his family. Just words, you'd think he's nuts. But instead, it was the life he then lived as a result. Like they might've initially thought their father had lost it, but then he goes out, he starts cutting down trees. He starts making wood. He starts clearing property for this thing. And you have to be sitting back thinking, either he's now really nuts, or maybe he really heard something. And as things keep moving, they see that Noah just didn't believe something, but he put all into it. He fully committed. His belief grew feet and hands and acted. And Noah's sons saw that. And that inspired them. Noah's faith became contagious to his family. It was the kind of faith that spawned a conviction that yielded an action. Men, brothers, always know your kids will emulate the faith you live more than the sermons you preach. Noah, if it had just been words and his life didn't live it up, they would have all died. But it was the fact that Noah was preaching a sermon he was willing to live and that was seen by his kids and became contagious. It's interesting that in verse 18 of chapter six, you find another very first uh, in the Bible. God comes to Noah. He says, he says, I will establish my covenant with you. That's significant. When we talk about a covenant, we rightly understand that a covenant's an agreement, right, between two willing participants. Most commonly, marriage, great picture of a covenant. And yet what's different about this, unlike marriage, is that it wasn't a covenant made between God and man, but instead a covenant God made for man. Look at it. He says, I will establish my covenant with you. Not we, not ours. It would appear because Noah would be spared judgment. God's telling him that it would now be through his lineage. This savior promised in Genesis 3.15 would descend from his family line. Verse 7, chapter 7. So Noah, with his sons, his wife, his son's wives, went into the ark because of the waters of the flood of clean animals, of animals that are unclean, of birds, everything that creeps on the earth. Two by two, they went into the ark to Noah, male and female, as God had commanded Noah. It came to pass after seven days that the waters of the flood were on the earth. In the 600th year of Noah's life, in the second month, 17th day of the month, on that day, all of the fountains of the great deep were broken 
up, the windows of heaven were opened, and the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights. As it pertains to the flood itself, we're given a few interesting details that kind of demand our attention. First, we're told the rain was on the earth 40 days and 40 nights as a result of what? Look at it. It rained because the window of heaven was being opened. This phrase being opened spoke of something being thrown open. It's a unique phrase. Now, while we're not given the specific details as to what's occurring, most scholars believe that what's being described here is that this canopy of water vapor that more than likely existed on the globe that allowed incredible amounts of vegetation, a very temperate climate across the earth, protected humanity from UV radiation, allowing them to live at great lengths, that this canopy of water vapor was being loosed. And as it was being loosed from the earth's atmosphere, it resulted in torrential rain showers, unlike the earth had ever seen or ever would. That for 40 days and 40 nights it rained, but it rained as a result of this canopy of water vapor being loosed. Additionally, it should be noted that the earth was flooded from, also, from what also appears to be some type of, of geological event. When, look at it, the fountains of the great deep were broken up. So we have water coming from above, this canopy of water vapor being loosed, it raining for 40 days and 40 nights, but we also have waters coming from up, coming up from beneath. This word broken up, this phrase, it's, it speaks of a violent tearing apart. Because we're told early on that the earth was watered from a mist that came up daily. Some believe that what's being described here is that the earth's crust of what more than likely was a supercontinent named Pangaea splintered. That, that the fountains being broken up is that this, this supercontinent was being splintered splintered, broken apart, allowing torrents of underwater caverns to come up, flowing out across the face of the earth. It's an interesting theory. It explains a lot of what we see uh, in, on our earth today. Now, though it's impossible to say with any type of certainty, it's not outside of the realm of possibility that an asteroid could have hit the planet, causing this tectonic splintering volcanic and seismic activity, as well as the sub subsequent debris field that would have gone up into the atmosphere, causing the loosing of the canopy. Some believe even that an asteroid hitting the earth causing this flood may have even been responsible for the earth being tilted on its axis. Regardless, and once again, there's a lot of science you can look into this. I'm just giving you, trying to whet your appetite. You can study it on your own. Regardless, the thing you need to understand this flood, it was not just about water covering the earth. That what's being described here are major geological events happening on the planet. Tsunamis, earthquakes, volcanic activity. It's not just that it rained 40 days and 40 nights and then the water slowly rose and everything was flooded. No, we're talking about something taking place on the planet rapidly that was radical in nature, that was global in nature, that changed the basic topography of the earth. Verse 13. On the very same day, Noah and his sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth, and Noah's wife and the three wives of the sons with them entered the ark they and every beast after its kind, all cattle, 
all cattle after their kind, creeping thing that creeps on the earth after its kind, every bird after its kind. You see that word kind a lot. Every bird of every sort, they went into the ark to Noah, two by two of all flesh, which is the breath of life. So they entered male and female of all flesh, went in as God had commanded him, and the Lord shut him in. (laughs) You know, the Lord shut him in. Was this a design flaw? Like that would have kind of been funny. Like you're Noah, the sons, you spent 120 years building this boat. You built the door according to God's specs and the side of this thing. You get in the boat, all the animals are in, it starts raining. And Noah looks at the boys, and the boys look at Noah, and they're like, shoot. We didn't really think about how to get the door closed. Like, there it is. It's open. What in the world? Like, did God shut them in because they had forgotten how to build a pulley mechanism to get the thing closed? And God's like, I got you, Noah. Or could it be something, something bigger? I, I, I tend to gravitate to it, towards it being something more significant. One door. One door in the ark. One door by which man could walk through to be saved from the coming judgment. You know, that same dynamic exists today. In John chapter 10, verse 9, Jesus said, and I think that this is not an accident, I am the door. If anyone enters me by me, he will be saved. And then he gets more specific in, in John 14, verse 6. He says, I am the way the truth and the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. You know, this idea of there being one door, one door into the ark, one door by which man would be saved from a coming judgment. People often find that claim to be narrow-minded, intolerant, to say that there's one door, bigoted. Only one door to be saved? Are you kidding me? Only one way to heaven? Are you serious? Only one way to God? You gotta, you gotta be kidding me. And yet, you know, from my estimation, one way, one way is not actually intolerant. As a matter of fact, one way, it's more than any of us deserve. It's only by God's amazing grace that there's any way that we could be saved. Like, think about how crazy it is that humanity would be like, there's only one way, I think that's intolerant. As opposed to being grateful that there's any way. That there's a way. There shouldn't be a way. But Jesus made one. It would be like you getting sick of some incurable disease. And some pharmaceutical company works overtime to come up with a vaccine, a remedy, a medicine for you to save your life. And they come to you and they're like, this costs a lot. You're going to die without it. But here you go. And you're like, well, it's just only one way. You bigot. Only one vaccine to save my life? You're intolerant. I'm going to reject that. Yeah, and you'll die. Like, it's just silly. You know, the people that make the claim about, well, there should be many ways. They make that claim because they're not interested in any way. 
They're the God-rejecting world. There was a door in the ark. And don't miss the significance of this phrase. The Lord shut him in. According to 2 Peter 2.5, we read it earlier. In addition to building the ark, we're told that Noah was a preacher of righteousness. For the 120 years that he's building this boat, Noah, we're told, spent his time, his free time, preaching, heralding to the world around him of a better way, but not just that, communicating that there was a coming judgment, but that there was a way to be saved. What a great object lesson. I mean, Noah preaching. I can see him pleading. This door. Yeah, there's one. But there's a door. And that door is the way to salvation. And friend, it's wide open for any and all who dare enter. There's a judgment. It's coming, but there's a way to be saved through that door if you would come. You know, the sad thing, other than his family and this 120-year ministry, not a single soul was converted. Everyone rejected the door. And then there came a point that the Lord had to shut it. It could be that Noah was still preaching as the waters rose. Maybe there was a way to close the door. And Noah, the heart of the preacher, was like, I can't do it. God was like, it's time. Man has been given enough time. That's why, friend, today is the day of salvation. Don't wait. For as in the days of Noah, Jesus said, so also will be the coming of the Son of Man be. For as in the days before the flood, they were eating and drinking, marrying and giving in marriage until the day that Noah entered the ark and did not know until the flood came and took them all away. So will be with the coming of the Son of Man. There is a judgment, friend. I'll close with this. It's coming. Church doesn't like to talk about it anymore. It's true. God wants to change your life today and now in the moment. But there's a judgment. You know how I know? Because God's told me. And his word, the same way he told Noah. And I believe it. And I've acted upon it. You know how? I've entered the door. The one way that man can be saved is how? By being in the ark. By going to the door. The one way that you can be saved is by being found in Jesus. By being saved in him. By accepting what he did on your behalf. It's a powerful story. We'll leave it there. We'll pick up right where we left off next Sunday. Father, Lord, we ask.